What is evil? And why is there such a thing? How can you believe in God in light of the evil that's in the world? And isn't there gratuitous evil? Evil that happens that doesn't seem to serve any purpose at all? These are important questions. They're the kinds of questions that people ask when considering the reality of God. I'd like to take a few moments in this session to address these questions together. To begin with, we need to make two introductory comments that may be important for the rest of our treatment of the topic of evil. The first involves what I call the proper context of evidence. I've lived with my wife now for 30 years. Suppose I went to the mall and I saw her holding hands with another man. Would it be reasonable for me to form the judgment that she was cheating on me? I submit that all depends. Depends on what, you may ask. Well, depends on what context of evidence I consider in forming my judgment. What if the only context I consider is the evidence of my eyes at the mall that very moment? After all, I see my wife. I see a strange man that I don't know. I see them holding hands together. They're at the mall and had no idea I would show up there. If that's the only evidence I take into account, I submit to you that the most reasonable thing for me to believe is that my wife is cheating on me. But is that the only evidence I ought to take into account? I think clearly the answer to that is no. Why? Because if I'm going to make a judgment about the situation, I ought to factor into my judgment all the evidence that's relevant to that judgment and not just one piece of evidence. To be more specific, I ought to take into account all the evidence that I have in living with my wife for 30 years. I know her very, very well. I know that she's not the kind of person that would commit adultery. I know, for example, that since she's from a divorced family where her own parents committed adultery, that she has a hatred for cheating, and it's the, she would rather die than cheat on me. Given my knowledge of her character and my having lived with her for 30 years, it would be unreasonable for me to judge that she's cheating on me even if I don't have a good explanation for what I'm seeing before my very eyes at the mall. Now, this proper context of evidence occurs regularly in life, for example, in jury trials. It is often the case that if you were to form a judgment about innocence or guilt on the basis of one isolated piece of evidence, your judgment might go in one direction, But when you take into account the total context of evidence, then you might go in another direction even if you don't have a good answer for how to deal with this one piece of evidence that you are overbalancing with the rest of the case. Now, why is the proper context of evidence relevant to the problem of evil? Many times people will claim How can you believe there's a God given the existence of evil? And they seem to think that we ought to judge whether there is a God or not based upon this one piece of evidence in isolation from the larger proper context of evidence. 
I submit to you that that is the wrong way to approach the topic. If we're going to judge whether it's reasonable to believe in God or not, we ought to take into account all the evidence that's relevant to that question, and not simply the evidence from evil. We ought to factor in, for example, the idea that we now know the universe began to exist and something had to cause it. There are many features of design in our universe (coughs) that require an explanation. There is an absolute moral law that requires an absolute moral lawgiver, and so on and so forth. Thus, even if I don't have a good answer to the problem of evil, it doesn't follow that I'm not reasonable in continuing to believe in God, because the evidence for God's existence might be strong enough that it overturns the negative evidence provided by the problem of evil as a standalone consideration. Thus, I suggest when we take into account the proper context of evidence, the Christian's task is not so overwhelming because it is not the Christian's job to show that it's reasonable to believe in God in light of evil alone. No, in light of the other evidence for God's existence, the Christian only has to come up with a plausible answer to the problem of evil, not one that would carry the day when evil is considered in isolation from the evidence for theism. There's a second consideration that I believe is preliminary that is important for us to take into account before we get into more of the details of the problem of evil. And that's the fact that not only does the theist have a problem, but the atheist has a problem lurking in the neighborhood as well. In the 400s, the church father Boethius said that the atheist can ask, if there is a God, how can there be evil? Fair enough, said Boethius. But the theist can ask, if there isn't a God, how could there be goodness? And Boethius meant that if God does not exist, how can we explain where good comes from, where an absolute standard comes from, where the moral law comes from, if there isn't a moral law giver, or an ultimate standard of right and wrong, good and evil? Maybe the following illustration will make Boethius's point a little clearer. <clears throat> Ask yourself, can the carburetor on an automobile function improperly? I think the answer is obvious, yes. You can have a dysfunctional carburetor that broke down and isn't working properly. When we say the carburetor is a bad carburetor, what do we mean when we claim that? Well, it's pretty clear that we mean the carburetor isn't working the way it's supposed to work. When we say the carburetor isn't working the way it's supposed to work, what does that mean? It seems clear to me that that means that the carburetor isn't working the way it was designed to work. Thus, before there can be a bad carburetor, there has to be a way the carburetor is supposed to work, and there has to be a way it was designed to work. It follows from this that before there can be a bad carburetor, there actually has to be a designer. It follows from that, I think, that evil or badness actually provides evidence for God's existence rather than evidence against God's existence 
in the way I have just suggested. Now contrast the real difference between an evil and a good carburetor, as it were, with a pile of leaves that blew up on my porch the other day in front of my back door. There were 10 or 15 pieces of leaves in this pile. And suppose I went out in the backyard and I said to my wife, do you see that third leaf right there in that pile of 15 leaves? Yes, that one right there. That is a bad dysfunctional leaf. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. Why? Because there is no way that leaf is supposed to function in the pile. The pile of 15 leaves is a random collection of leaves. There is no ordering to the way they're supposed to be relative to one another. The entire pile of leaves doesn't serve any function. And clearly, each leaf in the pile plays no role in the pile taken as a whole. So it would make no sense to say that that specific leaf right there is a dysfunctional leaf. Why? Because there just is no way the leaf is supposed to function. And that's because the pile of leaves was not designed and put there for a purpose. Thus, if there is no designer, there is no way the leaf should function, and there is no such thing as a good or bad, a functional or dysfunctional leaf. Thus, the very existence of the distinction between good and bad, evil and goodness, indicates that there must be a way things are supposed to be, and there must be a way things aren't supposed to be. If things are the way they're supposed to be, they're the way they were designed to be, and if things aren't the way they're supposed to be, they're not the way they were designed to be, and the very distinction between good and evil is evidence for God's existence. Now, this illustration I've given is not just an illustration. It is actually a truth that plays itself out in people's lives. For example, years ago, there was a serial cannibalizing killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, who killed a number of men and actually cannibalized their bodies after they were dead. Eventually, Dahmer was caught, and he was murdered in prison after, after he was there for a period of time. But between the time he was caught and the time he was murdered, he was interviewed on national television in jail. And the interviewer said, Mr. Dahmer, can you explain to us what in the world was going on when you were killing and cannibalizing these victims? And Dahmer made the following statement. He said, when I was a boy, I stopped believing in God. And I began to believe that the difference between right and wrong was merely a human invention of no more significance than customs, like eating your peas with a fork as opposed to a knife or spoon. Thus, the, the law, don't steal and don't murder, were no more important than the law, uh, than the customary rule, it's improper to belch at the table. Well, Dahmer went on to say, everyone who lives has certain desires that they want satisfied. Some people have a desire for ice cream, other people for recognition. People are going to find a way to satisfy their desires unless they think they've got a good reason that overrides that 
not to. Because I didn't believe in God, I did not believe we were put here for a purpose. Because I did not believe we were put here for a purpose, I did not believe that there was any real difference between right and wrong. I believe that we evolved from slime, that when we die, our bodies deteriorate and return to slime. There's no life after death, no judgment, no purpose for life. Given that I came to believe that, I could find no reason why I should say no to the things I desired. And I found as a teenager that I enjoyed torturing animals. And as I grew older, I began to find pleasure in torturing and murdering human beings. I now realize, said Dahmer, that God exists and that what I did is worthy of judgment and punishment and what I did was wrong. But if there is no God, it doesn't seem to me that there can be any real distinction between right and wrong and everything reduces to the level of mere trivial differences of custom and taste. This idea that you can't have a difference between the way things are supposed to be and the way things aren't supposed to be unless there is a, a designer God was something that Dahmer clearly grasped, and it changed the course of his life, unfortunately. Thus, the two preliminary remarks in dealing with the problem of evil is, number one, we have to take into account the proper context of evidence, which means that we don't decide whether God exists or not based on the evidence of evil alone, but we ought to decide that based upon all the evidence relevant to the question. And secondly, the atheist has a problem in this area as well, because it's far from clear that there could even be evil in the world if there weren't a God. Thus, evil may actually provide evidence for God's existence rather than providing evidence that there isn't a God. Now, what exactly is evil, anyway? Throughout the history of the church, dating from at least St. Augustine in the 400s, Christians have believed that evil is a lack or privation of something that ought to be present. Thus, evil is a parasite or a privation of something that ought to be there. It follows that there could be good without evil, but there couldn't be evil without good because evil is spoiled goodness. Think of it in terms of being colorblind. It's not evil if a rock can't see color because there's, rocks aren't supposed to be able to see color. But think about a little child that's colorblind. That is a defect or an evil situation in that child's eyes because the child is not able to function the way they're supposed to. Thus, evil is a falling short of the way things should be. And in the moral world, evil is sin. It's called missing the mark or falling short. It's obvious that you could have a mark without missing the mark but you couldn't have a missing of the mark without there being a mark. There could be a standard without falling short of the standard, but you can't fall short of a standard without there being a standard. There could be, way things, there could be a way the eye and other things are supposed to function, but there couldn't, without there being a way they don't, aren't supposed to function, but there couldn't be a way they're not supposed to function if there weren't a way that they are supposed to function in the first place. Another way of putting that is there could be health without disease, 
But there couldn't be disease without health because disease is an absence or a privation of health. Thus we see that evil is real, but it's not a real thing. It is a real lack or a real absence or a real privation. The colorblind child really lacks the ability to see color, and that's real. But the the lack of an ability to see color is not a positive feature of the child, like the child's skin color or weight or size. This is important because if evil were a real thing, God would need to create it. And thus God would be the creator of evil itself. But because evil, while real, is not a real thing, God doesn't need to be its creator because evil is not something that could be created. It is a lack of what ought to be there. Why was evil possible? Because of the nature of finite creatures. Because creatures are finite, they have the possibility of lacking. Because a child is a finite creature that isn't perfectly infinite in its goodness, it's possible, doesn't have to be actual, but it's possible for that child to be privated or to lose some of its abilities in one way or another. So the possibility of evil was part of the very warp and woof of the very nature of finite created beings themselves. Why did evil become actual? I believe here we have to appeal to the free will of God's creatures. And I believe the Bible teaches that evil was the result of the fall of Adam and Eve, where God not only judged Adam and Eve, but He judged the entire creation. Thus, evil results from both the fall of Satan and and a third of the angels in heaven, but perhaps more importantly, evil is the result of the fall of Adam and Eve. But now you may ask, you may say, wait a minute, I believe in an old universe. I believe the universe is 15 billion years old. I don't believe in evolution, but I do believe that the universe is old and the days of of divine creation are vast periods of time. That means that there was destruction and death before Adam and Eve fell for hundreds and perhaps millions of years. How could the fall of Adam and Eve be responsible for the introduction of death and decay and evil into the world if death and decay and evil came before Adam and Eve fell? This is a good question, and I believe there's a good answer to it. To see what that answer is, think about answers to prayer. One day I prayed that the Lord would give me a certain amount of money that He would provide for me, and lo and behold, that very day, the money that I had asked the Lord to provide for me and my family came as a check in the mail. I was absolutely certain that the check had to be an answer to prayer because it was for the exact amount that I had just prayed the Lord would 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 provide for me. And it came from a source I had actually told the Lord that I would like for Him to give me this specific amount of money from a source that I had never known before or had never heard that I was in need financially so that I could be sure that it had to be someone He prompted and it wasn't the result of people just knowing about our situation and giving to us 
in a way that wasn't a specific answer to prayer for sure. Well, lo and behold, I prayed that, and that very day, that specific amount of money came as a check in the mail from someone that I had never met, that I did not know, and who knew nothing of our situation but, for so, but wrote the check anyway. What's obvious is that that man had to have written that check and put it in the mail two or three days before I prayed for it. It's obvious then that my prayer took place after God moved him to put the check in the mail, but my prayer was still the cause of the man putting the check in the mail. This is called retroactive causation. God, in his foreknowledge, knowing that I was going to pray for a certain amount of money on a certain day, knowing that in advance, began to set up the arrangements for that prayer request to be answered days before I actually prayed it. God's Holy Spirit prompted this dear man, spoke into his mind the exact amount that I had been praying for, moved upon him to write a check two or three days, put it in the mail. It was already getting delivered to my house before the time that I decided to pray for it. Even though my prayer was after the arrangement of these affairs, my prayer was still the cause for the prayer to be answered because God in His foreknowledge knew what was going to happen and set in motion the answer to my prayer ahead of time. I submit that the same consideration can be explained, can be used to explain the fall of Adam and Eve. I personally believe in an old universe. I do not believe in the theory of evolution. I believe, I'm a, I believe in a form of creation, that God created all the basic kinds of life miraculously. But I do believe that the universe is, is, is billions of years old. And I believe that there was life on planet Earth millions of years before God created Adam and Eve quite recently. It follows that I believe that death and decay and destruction were on the earth before Adam and Eve fell. But I still believe that the death and the destruction that was on the planet earth was the result and caused by the fall of Adam and Eve, even though it was there before they fell. Why? Because God knew in his foreknowledge that Adam and Eve were going to fall, and as a result of that, he introduced chaos into the world as a result of their fall, even prior to the time the fall actually took place. Now, he did this in order to have a world outside the Garden of Eden, which I take was perfect, for them once they were banished from the Garden of Eden. They entered a world where there was already chaos and disease and death, so they could learn immediately the severe and horrendous consequences of their disobedience to God. It follows, then, that evil came from the fall of Adam and Eve, even though it predated Adam and Eve, because it was retroactively causal in that God introduced evil into the world before Adam and Eve fell, even though it was introduced because Adam and Eve fell. Now, why did God allow evil? We've said that evil is a privation or a lack of something that ought to be there, that it was possible to become real because of the very nature of created beings, 
but that it actually became real because of the fall of Adam and Eve and their sin, where God introduced judgment upon them and the world in which they lived. Why did God allow for evil? Well, number one, free will is a good thing. It is a very, very good thing that God gave human beings free choice. But once God gave human beings free choice, it was no longer up to him as to what they would do. It was up to them. And human beings, as a matter of fact, especially Adam and Eve and subsequent human beings as well, freely of their own volition chose to go against God's teachings and to sin against him. God did not cause them to sin. He did not force them to sin. God knew they would ahead of time, but it grieved him that they did, and God was willing to permit sin to enter the world because he so treasured and valued creating creatures with free choice that that treasure was worth it to him to allow that treasure to go wrong. The first reason then that God allowed evil, is that he valued the presence of free creatures more than he valued avoiding evil in the first place. Secondly, God allowed evil to be introduced into the world because evil, especially natural disasters and evil in the physical universe, serve two purposes. First of all, it serves as, an ex as a constant reminder of the human being's stewardship over the earth. Adam and Eve were told to serve as students, as stewards, to rule over the earth graciously and care for it. If they were placed here as God's representatives to care for the earth, and if they violated their stewardship and nothing ever happened to the realm over which they were stewards, that would raise a question about whether they were stewards in the first place. It is only if they were really put here, Adam and Eve were really put here to be stewards of the earth, and once they violated their stewardship, the realm over which they were stewards was allowed to be chaotic and to pay the price for their disobedience. Only then would their stewardship be real. If their stewardship violation was not allowed to have an impact on that of which they were stewards, their stewardship wasn't real. And the first reason why God judged the creation and introduced natural disasters and catastrophes was for the created world to serve as a constant reminder of the importance of human obedience and of the human stewardship over creation. The second function that evil serves in the created world is as a constant warning to us that there is something very wrong with us in the world and this isn't our home. C.S. Lewis made the important point that God speaks loudly to us through suffering. If this world were perfect and Adam and Eve and the rest of us were fallen and separated from God and destined for an eternal hell and separation from God, but that the environment we lived in was perfect and there was never any indication that something was wrong here, then it would be very easy for us to go through our lives with the false illusion of security and safety without ever having to face the fact that we were separated from God. 
God judged the world because a chaotic, disordered, and judged world serves as a constant, loud voice to us that there is something very, very wrong with this place. And not only is there something very, very wrong with this world, there's something very, very wrong with me. And that this just isn't my home. I was made for another place. I was made for a different kind of world that's perfect. And I, perhaps, in this non-perfect world, should seek that world and seek how I get there. So that God allowed for there to be physical disasters and a disordered creation because it serves as a constant reminder of the importance of human obedience and the human stewardship over God's creation. And it serves as a regular warning sign that something is wrong with our world and with us and that we need to be seeking seriously a different world. Finally, God allowed evil because it opens up the possibility of greater goods. For example, in a world without evil, it is impossible to show courage or to develop caring compassion for those in need. In a perfect world, there would be no one in need, and it would be impossible to develop the kind of compassion that we see in this world that is directed toward those who are needy. God realized that by permitting evil, there would be some goods that would result, the ability to show courage in the face of danger and evil, the ability to develop compassion in the face of hurt, suffering and hardship, that would not be possible in a perfect world. And thus, the final reason why God allowed evil was that it opened up the door for other goods to be achieved that would not be achieved if there were no evil that was allowed to enter the world in the first place. I do not say God caused all this evil, but He permitted it to occur. And these are some of the reasons why. Now this raises the question of gratuitous evil. You may recall that I said gratuitous evil is evil that occurs in the world that doesn't have any purpose to it. Why is there such a thing as gratuitous evil, evil that doesn't seem to serve any purpose at all? Well, the Christian will say that there really is no such thing as gratuitous evil, that all cases of gratuitous evil are only apparently gratuitous. They're not actually gratuitous. Think of it like this. Consider the following two propositions. Proposition one Since God exists, there is no gratuitous evil. Proposition two, since there is gratuitous evil, God does not exist. Which of those two propositions is more reasonable? The Christian theist will say proposition one is more reasonable because the evidence for God's existence is stronger than the evidence for gratuitous evil. Thus, the Christian theist will say, Before we ever consider the reality of gratuitous evil, we already have enough considerations from the creation to know that God is real. Since God is real, there can't be such a thing as gratuitous evil, and any alleged case of gratuitous evil will be alleged gratuity and not real gratuitous evil. It follows from this that even if we don't know the purpose for why some evil was allowed to happen, 
There will always be some larger purpose why God permitted this evil to occur that is according to His plan, even when we don't know what that purpose is. Now, we are just not in a position to judge whether an evil event was actually gratuitous. Consider some event that God permits. Suppose it is a disastrous tornado that wipes out several towns in the state of Oklahoma. Why did God allow this to happen? Was the permission to let these tornadoes wreak their havoc gratuitous evil or not? Well, how am I supposed to judge if the evil was gratuitous? I submit to you, before I would be in a position to say that was pointless evil, that tornado caused pointless evil, in order to judge that, I would have to have access to two areas of facts. Area number one, I would have to have some estimate of the long-term consequences, good and bad, that would result from these tornadoes of God permitting them to happen. That way I could have some sense for the long range over the next 50, 75, let's say 100 years, good consequences that could result from God letting this happen, and the bad consequences of God letting this happen, so that I could weigh the balance of the good and the bad that resulted from the tornadoes. That would be area of fact number one. But that would not be sufficient, because I would also need to have some ability to estimate the long-range 50, 75, or 100-year balance of good and bad consequences that would result if the tornado didn't happen. It is only if I have the long-term good and bad consequences that would result with the tornado happening and the long-range good and bad consequences that would result if the tornado didn't happen, only then would I have the relevant information for me to balance off against each other, to be in a position to judge that that tornado should not have been permitted, it was gratuitous. But now the problem becomes obvious. How is any human being ever going to be in a position to gain access to that kind of information? It's hard enough to estimate the long-term good and bad consequences of the tornado happening, even though it actually happened. But it's nigh into impossible to try to estimate the long-term good and bad consequences of the tornado not happening, because that isn't what took place. But I submit to you it is only by having access to these two areas of facts that a person is in the position to say that some evil is really gratuitous as opposed to only allegedly so, and it follows that we're never in a position to be able to make that kind of judgment. Thus, I'm arguing that any case of gratuitous evil is better judged to be allegedly gratuitous and not really so. I want to close our discussion of evil with some good news, some bad news, and some good news. First, let me begin with the good news. The Christian God does not simply provide an intellectual solution to the problem of evil. 
he enters into the suffering of his world himself. The beauty of Christianity is that God Almighty came to this earth and let himself be exposed to suffering, to mockery, to sickness, to death on the cross, and to pain and agony, so that the Christian God knows firsthand by his own experience what it's like to suffer. The Christian God, therefore, is not a distant observer of suffering. He's been a participant who knows how to come to the aid of those who suffer because he himself has suffered. That's the good news. The bad news is that when we're discussing the problem of evil, you have to remember that you're part of the problem. And while we're at it, I have to say I'm part of the problem as well. You see, the difficulty is that you and I are evil. Not always evil, not entirely evil. Surely we do good things, but we also do things that are harmful and wrong. And if we're going to have a real solution to the problem of evil, what we need is a solution to my evil and your evil. We have to have these taken care of. We can't just discuss evil in the abstract. We have to discuss it in keeping with our own situation. And that leads me to the final piece of good news. Because not only are we part of the solution, the Christian God has provided an ultimate solution to the problem of human evil through the death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ pronounces for all people at all times that the final solution to the problem of evil resides in a cross and a resurrection from the dead. The ultimate answer to the problem of evil is not simply abstract philosophical considerations, as important as they may be, but it's the death and resurrection of the God-man who paid the final price for human evil himself.